shall sing again. Let me ask you again, did you do the devotional this morning? How many uh, got to look over the questions? Okay, time for our uh, audience participation. Okay, who's got the first catechism question from the devotional and answer? Okay, who wants to uh, do that? Oh, I'm teasing. <laughs> I wrote the catechism question. You, you've got to give the answer, okay, in terms of uh, what about humility? Why do, isn't the first why question, yeah, why do Christian leaders need humility? Who, uh, who wants to uh, tell us? Okay, over here, Len. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, that's true. That's a general principle, right? That'll go for the second one as well. Why everyone needs it, that's a general principle. Why particularly leaders? I heard someone was going to say something. Be an example of the flock. Be an example of the flock. For people to be receptive to what they're going to teach. Okay, to be an example and for people to be receptive, a leader needs to be humble. What happens when a leader is not humble? It rubs off? In other words, as far as the model is concerned, that the people don't, are not humble. Okay? And in terms of receiving teaching, what happens when a person is not gentle? Okay. They turn off their hearing aid. Okay. Well, that's a very poignant example. Okay. Um, that's leader. What about people in general? Okay, Len said God opposes you. Uh, <clears throat> nobody in their right mind would want to go one-on-one with God. Uh, he wouldn't, you know, we'd have more chance of going one-on-one with Michael Jordan and winning than going one-on-one with God and winning. So if God opposes the proud and you're the proud, then he will resist you. So that's not a very healthy position to be in. But, of course, we're all uh, subject to that lack of humility and pride, which means that God may oppose us. Um, you see that even in some good kings, don't you, in the Old Testament. They become real proud. God gives them victory after victory. And uh, then all of a sudden they sort of sit there and go, mm, I'm not bad, am I? <laughs> this is pretty good stuff. I can't possibly lose. And then you know, God... Uh, so everyone needs the humility. Okay. Uh, what's the third question? What does that humility and suffering produce in you? What does that thought of humility, the fact that you have to be humble and you have to suffer, what's it produce in you? I know what it produces in me. What did someone say? Awesome fright. That's what someone said. Yeah, awesome fright. Okay, it does... It, it, may, it may bring conviction to the Spirit's work. But let's work on the first one first. Awesome fear. Why would humility and suffering bring fear? <laughs> uh, that's, that, that loud swat was uh, someone using the devotional, <laughs> devotional to uh, knock off a fly. That was a good secondary usage of the uh, devotional booklet to uh, knock off flies. Okay, Mrs. Churchill. With me, it's like I'm not that sure that God's going to do the good thing, what I consider good. So 
So it's as a lack of real trust that God is absolutely in charge and whatever He does is right. Okay, it makes you vulnerable because you have to wait for His deliverance. You have to wait for Him to move. And that puts you in a very precarious position. See, at least if you can fight back in a fleshly way, you know, we, we all know how to do that. We can get even with other people uh, through sinful methods. But how to continue to suffer, and uh, as the Scripture cry is, how long, O Lord? And when you don't know precisely how long, um, it can become very, very uh, scary. We saw that in chapter 3, remember, with wives. Don't give in to any fear, you know, an intimidation, uh, which is easy to do. And once you do that, you panic and you get routed very easily because the enemy can kind of run you off the field of uh, conflict. Okay, so there's one more question, which was, uh, what gives you hope in the midst of this? Romans 5, 2 to 5, which says, Romans 5, 2 to 5. Okay, it's coming. Uh, okay, we won't we won't edit out the silent times on the tape here. Here you can hear the pages. <laughs> hear his pages rustling. Okay, here. He's reading it silently. Just turn. Though, through whom we also have access of faith into grace, in which we stand, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in the tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Okay. So, it's the process of suffering... It's the process of developing hope in the midst of that that begins to develop our character. When a person comes face to face with God, how do they react? Oh, the Lord, we're we're just we're buddies, right? Ever ever hear that kind of? The way a lot of evangelicals today talk about God is if He's the guy that's next door and straps up the sneakers with them. Let me suggest to you that when people meet God face to face, that there is a fairly consistent pattern. Okay? Try this on. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out <clears throat> while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. 
And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Try Job. Job. When the Lord met Job, chapter 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Notice the sarcasm. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. He goes on, on, and what is Job's answer? Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Not real buddy-buddy, is it? And then I remind you of Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. Remember when the, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, comes and he announces the birth of Samson. And Manoah goes, we're dead. We're dead. And of course, his wife goes, well, you know, if he intended for us to be dead, we would probably be dead by now. Now, the important thing to gain and remember Peter in the boat. We read that the other day, the first day. What is the almost uniform expectation of a person that meets God face to face? I will die. I have seen the face of Almighty God. And the person that doesn't gets in trouble. Remember who did? Gideon. Remember Gideon? We mentioned Balaam the other day. Gideon, even though he's chosen of God, remember the angel of the Lord comes, burns up the, the sacrifice, and then he says, well, don't get mad at me. Do me a favor. And I always get this mixed up. I'm biblically dyslexic. Okay. <clears throat> Make everything wet and the fleece dry. Is that the first one? And then he says, don't get upset. Make the fleece wet and everything else dry. Okay? And, and what people t- today will say that Gideon is a man of great faith. No, you know what he did? He made an ephod, remember? He was so used to having direct revelation from God, he made an ephod that caused Israel to stumble in sin. So when people tell you about laying fleeces before the Lord... And that this is the great, the great thing to do. Eh, wrong answer. <clears throat> because he was not so impressed with the presence of God to fear and to tremble. And that comes down for us to get back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and sets us up to read the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Because your great need, beloved, if you are going to suffer 
If you are going to please God in the midst of being pounded, you need humility. You need humility. Your great need, my great need. God, give me a double portion of humility. Because without humility, you will not be able to suffer the way God wants you to. 1 Peter chapter 5. Therefore, we had just had a therefore in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing His right. That's the bottom line. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, remember this is Peter, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You and I need to be humble. Verses 1 for 5, we just read. He, he's exhorting the leaders, and that's where it has to start. And I think most of you have a good sense of why it needs to be so. Notice how Peter uh, characterized himself. I'm your fellow elder. He isn't talking about being an apostle, having that extra authority. He's talking in, a, in the equal status in terms of being a fellow elder. He says, look, I'm, I'm your fellow elder. An elder means a uh, presbyteros. We're going to have the presbyteroi coming today. We're going to have the uh, brethren coming. Now, normally that's older. Why does it need to be older? Because young isn't beautiful biblically. Old is beautiful because old has the wisdom. Why? Because you older ones are gnarly. Okay? You're scarred. Okay? You have got the battle scars. Okay? You know, uh, yeah, we want the vigor of youth but we certainly want the wisdom of age that goes, you know, son, you're getting ready to get suckered. Satan is setting you up, and I want to tell you, because I've been there 
And I've seen it happen, and you're going to get it. I have what I call the Scipione teaching method. And I did it with my interns. And I say it like this. Here's the mistakes I made in the first five years of my pastorate. Here's all the mistakes. Now you avoid them and you'll be five years ahead of schedule. And it works. It works. Those interns, some of them started churches. And in some ways, the mother church there in Harmony is really good and solid, very missionary-minded. But two of those churches that we started don't have some of the problems. And those guys could avoid that. Fellow elders... To oversee, we need the wisdom. Okay, and as we begin to fight the battle as an elder, notice what particularly Peter hones in on. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, I'm not in the sense, I can only do it indirectly through Scripture. But part of leadership is, I want to tell you how Jesus suffered. See, to be a leader, you have to be acquainted with suffering. And boy, oh boy, could Peter talk about the suffering. Boy, oh boy, let me tell you how I blew it. <laughs> I did see the sufferings of Christ. I, I did cop out there for a while, but you know, I did see the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I have to be embarrassed to say it. But I kept telling him, no way you're going to the cross, Lord. You know, and he kept going, Satan, get behind me. I got put down quite a bit, didn't I? Okay? The sufferings of Christ. Okay, and I will tell you, as a leader, if you have the humility to feast on and understand the sufferings of Christ and to be a partaker in that, you will have people drawn to you because they will understand this man knows. And uh, no matter what you say, going through that suffering is crucial. I would say to my wife, you know, hon, it's tough watching you give birth to babies. I get this back pain, you know, standing up for 13 hours watching it. And somehow it never carried weight with her that I fully understood what she was going through. Okay? But if one of you ladies said, man, I know what back labor is. And I know what it is to, you know, get there, transition, and I just can't get the baby out. Say, yeah, yeah, I understand. Now, the fellow sufferer and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. Notice the poles, the suffering and the glory. And I just think Peter picks those up particularly because that's the focus of the book. He goes on to say, what are you supposed to do? Shepherd the flock. Sounds familiar. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my lambs. Peter, <clears throat> that's what you're supposed to do. And what will happen? You'll receive the winner's crown. Now, some of you have been uh, rewarded better than you know working 30 years for a company and getting some pen. You know, thanks. You know. <clears throat> hey, in these days, getting a pen from a company is a lot. I had a guy that was an elder with me for and back in Phillipsburg, and he worked for a well-known company, Ingersoll Rand. He was a vice president of a division. And they told him one Friday, don't come in next Monday. We're consolidating two things, and we, we don't need two vice presidents. After 24 years. Uh, 
You know, remember, God is not a God of stones, snakes, and scorpions. He's a God of bread, fish, and eggs. Remember, Satan wants you to believe that God is, Gotcha! <laughs> you thought... <laughs> you thought that I really meant that stuff about salvation and rewarding you for faithfulness. <laughs> Boy, did I fool you. Now again, I'm not being blasphemous, but that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe, that God plays cosmic jokes on his people. And he doesn't. And Peter says, look, go shepherd the sheep. And I've told people, I know what it's like. I've been a pastor. If you've been an elder, you know what it's like. You get kicked in the teeth by the sheep. Because sheep at times act like goats. And nobody that's been a pastor for more than three months has not had somebody turn on them. Remember what they say in water safety instruction? How many of you have WSI? Okay, a couple. Never approach a drowning... What? Finish it for me. Never approach a drowning person from the front. Why? They'll take you under. And, and I've, I've adjusted. Never approach a drowning sinner from the front. Sneak up on them from behind. I have had people, really, and when I was in Harmony, I had people tell me, you ruined my marriage. You were the cause of my divorce. Now, you have to understand the, the situation. This person had asked me to go talk with their husband who was running around with another woman. And I simply went and talked with this gentleman and told him that he was sinning and that he needed to cease and desist and come back to his wife. He was offended by that. Okay. And he ended up divorcing her. And she said, you caused my divorce. Okay. Now, was I offended? That's one of the few times. No, I wasn't. You know why? That's a drowning sinner. And she was so hurting. In fact, she didn't even remember she had said that years later when, when the Lord really had done her work in her life. Why? Because she was so hurting and so desperate, she needed somebody to blame. And I was the easy person to blame because I was the person that went and confronted her husband. Now, if you're going to take things personally, you need to have a heart of Christ and a hide of a rhinoceros if you're going to be a leader. And you can't take, you know, these things personally. But we normally do, don't we? So you've got to shepherd the flock that God... And, of course, all this good stuff. Uh, you know, and of course, normally, you know, we don't think in the OPC of making a lot of money. Okay? So we don't really do it for sordid gain. Maybe <laughs> semi-gain, at least, or so. Okay? Okay. But, you know, you, you know... You, if you, you know, there are perks, you know, people. We were talking, you know, Raleigh and I, you know, you can get subtly into it for, for people's love. You know, it, it can be. We, we love being loved. We love being leaders and someone finally giving us a hug and saying, thanks, I'm really glad that you're there. But you can't do it even for that because sometimes that dries up. 
you know, and people don't like your sermons, you know, and, and they don't like this, they don't like that, they don't like the other thing. And then, of course, you know, some of us experience you leave and somebody else comes. And then what happens to the church after you leave? You know, it's hard, it's hard being a pastor. I love Don Taws, and, but I, I said to my wife, you know, I know this doesn't happen, but it'd be like dying and going to heaven, and I know that you'll probably and you should remarry, but it won't look right to me. You know, I was going back to Harmony and, and being there and seeing somebody else in the manse and somebody else in the pulpit. It was kind of like seeing someone married to your wife. It just wasn't quite right. You just never know what's going to happen. It's like Proverbs. You never know who this congregation is going to be left to. Now, in the OPC, we've got a better shot than most places of seeing a good leader coming in after us. But all these things come in. And, and, and Peter is talking about this and saying, look, do it voluntarily, not under compulsion, not for sordid gain, but for eagerness, not as lording it over, but proving his examples. That's pretty tough. And you know why you need humility? Because you'll never do that without humility. You'll never do it without humility. When the, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of of glory. That old pen, you know, from the company, you know, those medals that you got, you know, when you were, you know, your fading letters from high school, they'll all fade, you know, but when you get the crown of glory, it won't fade. You've got to keep your eye on the reward. But, beloved, to be a leader, whether it's a husband in a family, a uh, 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 father, whether it is to be, uh, you know, I don't usually quote Harry Truman, <coughs> but you know, uh, if you can't take the heat, stay out of the kitchen. And, and the reality is, if you don't want flack, then don't become a leader. Don't become a leader. But after all, God has called you to it, you can't. And you've pointed out the reason why. This general principle quoted from Proverbs, God resists the proud. Just, just stand up and be proud and what God will knock you down. But if you humble yourself, if you get on your knees, if you get on your face before God, if you throw yourself before Him and cry for mercy, what will He do? picture is great, right? He'll exalt you at the proper time. He'll pick you up. See, if you exalt yourself at the improper time, you know what might happen? A sniper might get you. Right? And isn't that true in military conflict? It's, it's in the Scripture. Satan knows the tactic. Strike the shepherd and you will scatter the sheep. What happens to a congregation where the pastor is caught in immorality or in embezzlement or whatever? Man, you want to see a, a flock scatter quickly, you see. And so, what will happen? And we talk about friendly fire. Stonewall Jackson got hit by one of his own men earlier in the day. You know, when you ride tall in the saddle, you know you catch an awful lot of, uh, you know, fire. And that's military tactics. Knock out the center of command, and what do you do? You've cut the brain off. You've cut the head off of the uh, body 
and the body can't function. And so you will have particular targets. So let me just say to you elders, you will be particular targets of hostility and hatred and bitterness that will tempt you to respond in an angry, ungodly way. Well, it's not just the leaders. And it goes on to say, Younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Now, isn't that, wouldn't that be a, a real interesting thing? How do you get dressed in the morning? Some of you, I wonder why, how, how it is that you get dressed. No, seriously. Okay? If you go out in battle, usually, if you're a trooper, you usually put your flak jacket on, don't you? To protect the vital parts. And that's a picture. Put on humility. First thing that you should do when you're in bed, in fact, some of you, it should be before you even get out of bed, before the eyes open up, immediately there should be a humbling and going, okay, Lord, this day isn't mine. I don't belong to me. You know, right from the beginning, okay, it won't go well if I'm not humble. So you need to be humble. Secondly, you need to humble yourself under God. Now what does that mean? Simply obedience. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God who will exalt you at the proper time. And of course, now here's, here's the understanding that Peter has. Now, if you do that, what are you going to have to do? Cast your anxiety or your care on the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. See, to live this way, beloved, is difficult. In fact, I'd have to say it's impossible. Apart from God's grace, you can't live humbly. So, so humble yourself under God's hand that He exalts you at the proper time. So what's that going to do? While you're on your face, you're going, I'm down on my face. They can put a gun to my head and shoot me and I still even wouldn't even know what would happen to me. Because in this position, people can take advantage of me. And so you need to cast your cares on the Lord because He cares for you. See, even when you're in the midst of fear, and beloved, you can get through fear. Some of, you are, some of us are more timid than others, but you have to remember that if you learn to live through the experience of fear and God holds you through it, you will have learned your lesson. I have friends who uh, struggle with fear, with depression, other things, and I always have to remind them, you will not get over this until you live through it. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't there any way around? No. You have to go through the valley of the shadow of death so that the Good Shepherd walks with you, so that you know that you will live through it. And, and constantly, we're always trying to go the other way. There was a saying from InterVarsity, I don't know whoever uh, invented it, but you know, it's, uh, it goes like this. You know what the problem with living sacrifices are? They always crawl off the altar. <laughs> it's the problem with living sacrifices. They crawl off the altar. Okay? And, and, and there we are. We're, we're kind of like so many uh, Isaacs. Uh, Dad? Uh, I see the fuel. I see the fire. But where's the sacrifice? 
And then when we get bound to the altar, we kind of our voice gets a little higher. Dad, <coughs> I know what the sacrifice is now. I don't like it. Okay. And as the knife goes up, and we go, Dad, Joey needs to be a better sacrifice than me. He always was less squirmy. See, we always want to volunteer the other guy to do the dying. Um, No, you've got to see this. Now, interesting to me, and and again, this goes into a whole large, this could be another conference, is this whole thing of spiritual warfare. Because look what it says, but be sober of spirit on your alert for your adversary. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like I said before, he can gum you to death pretty well. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences. The point is, how do you fight Satan? By submitting to God. Do you understand that? And as Reformed people, we should really understand that. And we'll talk about it a little bit tomorrow morning, Lord willing. What is spiritual warfare? Back to Ephesians 6. Spiritual warfare isn't getting out, you know, the kind of light swords like a Jedi saber. How many of you read Frank Peretti's novels? So, yeah, fun novels to read. Lousy theology, right? You know, all these giant, this would be a great, you know, this would be a great video game, you know, the way Peretti writes, you know. But you don't go fighting, you know, these demons and everything like that. How do you do it? Prayer, Bible study, we'll get back to that tomorrow. So, when you submit to God at one at the same time, you are resisting Satan. And some people think it's different. Submitting to God is one thing and fighting spiritual warfare is another. But that's false. It's one and the same. As you submit to God, you are resisting the devil. And that's pretty important because that's economy of life. If you have to have this old kind of structured demonic casting out in warfare, it becomes something that you know only specialized people know how to do. And that's not what Peter is saying. So you need humility and you need to submit to God. And, uh, and this will work. Why? Because God's faithful. The final thing is to remember, this isn't so unusual. And in fact, everybody else is suffering this too. Do you realize right now that there are Christians that are literally dying for their faith? Now I think if you're like me, you've become so kind of Americanized and kind of fat, dumb, and happy spiritually that you think it was way back, you know, 1900 years ago in the Colosseum where people died. I, don't even th- I wasn't even a, a, a Christian at the time, but I thought I was. And it, it, it really impacted me to stand in the Colosseum. My aunt was a missionary in Italy, and my sister, uh, a very generous uh, Christian gal, she said, let's go visit her. And she paid for my trip. This was right after uh, university, so it would have been 67. And uh, two things impressed me when we were in Rome, even as a non- non-believer at the time. Standing in the Colosseum is, first of all, it doesn't look like what you think. I always pictured it as being like a you know, sand pit, like a bullring. But it wasn't. It was a labyrinth. You know, it had all kinds of stuff in the bottom. So it didn't look as I expected. But secondly, this kind of eerie thought started creeping over me. They used to feed people to lions down there. People used to get killed 
That was kind of the first time in, in my life it started registering on me that Christianity wasn't just kind of, you know, playing games. They got killed down there for their faith. It was really it began to, to work on me is that 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 Christians suffer. And it would be well for you to pick up some missionary magazines. Uh, I read Moody Monthly once in, uh, about five six no would boy quite a few years ago now. But it was the early eighties or nineties, somewhere in that period, so it's been real recent. And it was a story of a tribal culture where the gospel had come. And there was a language group that was the same, but it was a different tribe. Although they spoke the same language, they were enemies for as long as the tribe could remember. And people from that tribe that had become Christians said, we've got to take the Gospel to this other tribe. And it was the story of how those Christians said, they have been our enemies for as long as anybody can remember. We can ever, never remember there ever being peace between the tribes. So when we go, we can't bring our weapons. And, and the missionary said, but you know, you, you'll probably get killed. And they said, we know that. But if we bring our weapons they will not understand what we're there for. And in fact, several of them were killed. And it really struck me that they really understood what this book is all about. That there was no way, humanly speaking, that that other tribe could ever come to Christ as they had through war. It could only come as they were willing to march over valley and hill with nothing but the shield of faith. And if God so chose for them to die for the Gospel, that they were willing to do that, that people who had been their enemies for centuries might hear of Christ. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why do you participate in the sufferings that other Christians in the world Because you want to see other people come to Christ. And is it worth it? Here's the bottom line. After you've suffered for a little while, again, there's the temporality of it the limited nature of the suffering, the God of all grace, who has called you to what? His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect and firm. You see, where are you going? On that great day, beloved, when everybody around you has thumbed their nose at you and laughed at you and mocked you and put you down and called you names. In that day, when Jesus Christ stands up as the Lord of Lords and you stand next to Him, He who laughs last, laughs best. He who rejoices in that glory. 
You will stand next to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be crowned and everyone will have to confess that Jesus is Lord and you are His subject. He will confirm that. But in the meantime, what will happen? Well, God will do what He intended to do. He will perfect you. He'll mature you. He'll confirm you. Yes, I am God's child. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Remember? Write this one down. Look up 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, I don't want you to be fooled. When we were in Asia Minor, we were dead. We had the sentence of death written in our bodies. We were sure that we were gone. No questions asked. We had determined we're gone. We're dead. Now, why did God do that? This is Paul. You know, weak Paul. You know, look what he goes through. So that we would trust not in ourselves, but in Him who raises the dead. And then we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. Paul says, I'm sure that I'm dead. Don't know the circumstances, but there we were going to be killed. And God enabled us to trust in Him who raises the dead. And He brought us through it so we can comfort others. See, God will mature you. He'll confirm you and go, that's it. I know whom I believe and I know on that day I will see my Redeemer in my body. I'll see Him face to face. Do you know, seeing my father die has in a sense confirmed the Gospel for me. It's confirmed in a way that even as much as his, his godly life didn't do it. I am more sure of the Gospel seeing my father die in faith and see my mother trusting in the Lord. The suffering that they go through is a confirmation. He will perfect you, will confirm you, He'll strengthen and establish you. And then you'll be able to say with Paul, I am convinced that not life nor death, not angels nor demons, not height nor depth, nothing in this created realm can separate me from the love of God He has for me in Christ Jesus. And beloved, when you say that, people will stand up and listen. Because they'll say, either God has done something or they're smoking something I have never, ever heard of before. When people are confronted with the resurrected Christ working through the Holy Spirit in your life, they don't have answers for that. And then... To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you understand? We'll burst into praise. See, a little bit. It's faint for me. But a little bit. It's this kind of thing that made those little wispy women go into the Colosseum and be gnawed on by lions and sing the praise of God while they're dying. I can't conceive of that. I can't understand that. 
But when you have that kind of faith in our risen Lord Jesus Christ, you can write the hymn like Luther. Though this world with devils filled threatens to undo us. Forget it. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also the body they may kill. And so, remember, if you're like me, you're generic, everyday brand coward. And you worry about dying for the Lord. You'll have dying grace when you leave. Because God will confirm you and establish you and probably as you're going out in martyrdom and glory, go, why did it take me so long to get this down pat? Why couldn't I have gotten it sooner? You see, beloved, it's, it's an army of people like that, young and old, men and women, boys and girls, that will affect the world. You see, one of the things that's interesting even with an ungodly parallel like communism. In the early days of communism, when people were doctrinaire and really, the world took notice because there were people that were willing to die for something that they believed in. Today, most communist leaders are just trying to live off the dole, you know, off the proletariat. But Christianity used to be that Remember what they said before? This guy is turning the world upside down. What do you think Artesia would do with uh, 1,000 Christians that live like that? Or Carson? Or Irvine? Or San Diego? It'll make a difference. It really will make a difference. Our great need, beloved, is humility. Let's pray. Father, it's when we really say that we are not our own, we've been bought with a price, so therefore we need to glorify God both in body and spirit. It's then, Lord, that we will be that powerful impact. Lord, we love Your people. We love the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But we long to see a day, Lord, when even more it will be blessed. Lord, there is no doubt that this land needs a third great awakening. Needs it desperately. And Lord God, it will only come as we humble ourselves under Your mighty hand and You exalt us at the proper time. Lord, it's intriguing to know that there was a day in the history of this country which was never a Christian nation, but that, Lord, uh, Bible-believing Presbyterians were a, a large portion, uh, a, a majority of the church and of the general populace. Lord, could that ever happen again? Most surely by Your grace. Lord, we would pray before you throw America in the ash heap of nations, which she so richly deserves, we would plead, Lord God, that you would salt her and enlighten her through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and use us. Lord, we have a great adversary in the devil. He has all the tactics and moves that he needs 
on a human or supernatural level. But Lord, the Gospel will triumph. But Lord, we don't want to despise the day of small things. But Lord, we don't want the day of small things to remain. We plead, Lord God, you will start with us. Start in San Diego and in Orange County in L.A. and Santa Barbara County and beyond, Lord, up to um, Santa Margarita, Santa Maria, Lord. We pray that you will be with our congregations and will cause us to be humble people. People that, Lord, the world will say, behold how they love God, how they love each other, and that they will see in the humility uh, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we go to association meetings today, as we uh, play games, as we have the installation service tonight and think of Uganda. Lord, may the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Do start with us. Revive the OP, Lord. Uh, uh, revive us and cause us to be humble, broken, suffering servants that will bring glory to our King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray.